Welcome to Not in a Huff with Jackson Huff, where we interview newsmakers, storytellers, and all-around interesting people. Sit back, relax, uh, unless you're driving, and enjoy the show. Here's Jackson. Hello, hello, hello. I am Jackson Huff. This is Not in a Huff. Thanks so much for joining me. Appreciate it as always. This week, another great guest. I'm interviewing Christian De La Huerta. Now, this is an interesting conversation because it's it's very twofold. So we're going to start the first half speaking about growing up and his childhood. He grew up in Cuba uh, during the height of the revolution in the 60s. So we're going to talk about what it was like growing up during the Cuban revolution, you know, family life, what he was, uh, you know, the positives and the negatives and, and all of that. Uh, he did move to the United States when he was 10 years old. We'll talk about that experience as well. Um, the second part, we're going to talk about a book that he very recently wrote about taking power back. Now, from his perspective, it's just a very interesting, interesting topic. We're not talking about political power or you know power necessarily over people. It's more about personal power and taking the power back in your, your own life uh, to live a better life. So I thought it was a really interesting and, and cool conversation. Definitely, you know, the, the beginning part to hear about, you know, the Cuban Revolution, but then also to hear from someone who grew up in a, a communist country that they, you know, they didn't really have much power. That's that's kind of the, the way that the communist countries run to being someone who speaks about and wrote a book about, you know, in internal power and taking power back. Really, really fascinating I really enjoyed speaking to him. We're going to we're going to talk a lot about a lot of different topics and uh, I think you're really going to enjoy this one. Here is my interview with Christian De La Huerta. I am here today with Christian De La Huerta. How are you? I'm doing great, Jackson. Thanks for having me on your show. Absolutely. Thanks for coming. I really appreciate it. So, yeah, I mean, I guess the the way I normally always start is just have the the guest tell us a little bit about themselves. First, so tell us just a little bit about, uh, I guess, growing up and, and how you got to, to where you are. Just a, a quick blurb, and then we'll kind of go into to each area a little bit deeper. Yeah, you know, that's interesting because it does connect to the theme of, of this book that I'm writing about, um, Personal Empowerment. Is I was raised in Cuba. I was born in Cuba, lived there for the first 10 years of my life in a communist regime. You know, So it was very dictatorial, uh, power over structure, very hierarchical. Um, my family was very Catholic, so another very, you know, very hierarchical institution. So it's, it's kind of unusual or weird that I'm writing about personal empowerment and um, what it means to live heroically, given that background. So I came to the States when um, I was 10, didn't speak a word of English, and we lived in a small town in, in Georgia for the first three years while while my father, who was a psychiatrist, was getting his licensing here. And, you know, honestly, it was at that time, they weren't very kind to foreigners. Uh, so I grew up feeling like very different, like there was something wrong with me. And I was really shy. I was, I was a good student. So I, was, I did well in school. In fact, I had a 4.0 in high school, except for one B. And I didn't do this intentionally, of course, but looking back on it, I know that what happened was that I sabotaged my GPA so that I didn't have to get up in front of a room of hundreds and hundreds of people and give a, a valedictorian speech. There is no way 
just no way that I would that I would have been able to do that then. And these days, um, you know, I speak all over the world. I'm a TEDx speaker. I'm actually, you could say, I'm a professional speaker because I get paid for for speaking. Um, and so, what I when I talk about this journey of personal empowerment, and and I talk about overcoming our our self-imposed fears and limitations and transcending our obstacles, it's like I know what I'm talking about. My my adolescence was one long depression. Um, with suicidal thoughts, you know, suicidal fantasies. I say, struggled to find a place for myself in, in this world. And um, these days, like no matter what happens in my life, no matter the details, no matter the circumstances, a relationship works out or it doesn't, a project succeeds or it fails, I never, ever question my self-worth. So, so I never go fall back into that self-doubt and even self-hatred. Yeah, which is a powerful thing. So, I mean, you you mentioned obstacles. So let's talk a little bit about, you know, those first 10 years and, and obstacles that were in place for you and for, you know, a lot of, of Cuban people based off of uh, the regime that was in charge. So tell us a little bit about that. So many things that we take for granted here in the U.S. I mean, not to mention, the, you know, the, the physical material things like, you know, like here's an example. What's What's chewing them to, to us here in the States? Like, you know, we stick it in the mouth and spit it out and don't even think about it. We were kids and we had it better than most because my parents had friends who worked in foreign embassies. So once in a while, we'd get a, a pack of the little chiclets. I don't know if you remember those, uh, but we s- split it among the kids because we were, you know, a bunch of kids. We were eight kids uh, then. And, you know, like chew, on a, uh, chew, chew our gum all day and then at night get a glass of water with, you know, put a little bit of water in it a little bit of toothpaste, put our gum in it and stir it so it'd be minty the next day and then hide it so my mom wouldn't throw it out, but she would. Mm. Um, and those are the, you know, the little things that we take for granted here, not to mention freedom um, and not having to live in fear and having choice. Like in, in many totalitarian countries, you don't like in Cuba, for example, you, don't, you didn't have a choice to go to college or if you did, what to study, like you were told. And, and so... I'm really grateful for that experience because it really, it's, it really, I guess you develop a deeper appreciation for, for what this country stands for. Well, I guess what, what years were you there? And I guess what was the U S's relationship with Cuba at the time? So I know we've had a, a very, uh, I guess up and down roller coaster relationship with, with Cuba. So I just wonder exactly what time frame uh, you were there. Yeah. And the fifties actually Cuba and, and the U S had a really close relationship. In fact, there, were, there was a ferry that came from Havana to, to Key West, I think, three times a day. And it was at a time where, the, you know, the, the Cuban peso was at times even had a higher value than, than, than the U.S. dollar. Um, and then the revolution came in the late 50s and 59, which is the year that I was born. I was actually three months in my mother's womb when the revolution happened. Hmm. So I, I lived there the first, you know, 10 years of the revolution. And when we left, we left at that point, the embargo was already in place. Uh, so you couldn't fly directly to the States. Uh, so we had to go to Spain for about six months, lived in Madrid for, for that period of time. And then, then, you know, once you got the permits and the visas and all that kind of stuff, then you were able to immigrate. Yeah. So I guess, obviously, you know, Cuba's, I mean, parts of Cuba is only 80 miles away from the United States, but then you had had went to, to Spain. So which culture did you, was more like the Cuban culture? I mean, I know that obviously you, you had a common language in Spain, but did you find that the, the Spanish culture was 
was more similar to, to Cuba than, you know, the neighbor 80 miles away in the United States when you got here? That's a really good question. Um, you know, both of them were in the world completely. Like in Spain, we had the commonality of language and it's, you know, you probably get 90% of it is like you go into Australia or, or the UK where you can definitely get the majority of it. And then there's some, some words and some idioms that just don't mean the same thing. Um, so it's kind of like that, you know, going, so, but I'll never forget, you know, going the first time I ever went to a supermarket in Spain, mind blowing, you know, things that I'd read about that I hadn't seen, like, like an apple, you know, or, or, or ham, you know, living in a communist country, you, it's, it's not an easy thing. Like, like we didn't have any toys. I mean, we, and we had some toys and again, we had a better than most, but I'm really grateful for that too, because, you know, we had a TV, but there was nothing worth watching. Um, except for, you know, some old American movies from, from the 40s and the 50s, I guess, and some government propaganda. But the benefit of that was that we grew up reading. Um, so I developed, you know, a long, lifelong love affair with books. And we grew up creating and inventing our own games and pastimes. Um, which, so it's sad for me to see, you know, these my, my nieces and nephews and so many from the younger generations now where they just live in their little um, phones or computers, so, you know, growing up, given that you, you grew up, you know, in that culture and that's really all that you knew, did you truly feel that you, you know, were oppressed or that you, you know, weren't giving the same opportunity as others or, or did, you know, growing up, you, that's, you didn't know any different. So it really didn't affect you as much, if that makes sense. Yeah, you know, of course, we were protected as kids. We didn't know everything that was going on. My parents were actually counter-revolutionaries so they were conspiring you know against the revolution and, and out of their pod of friends their circle circle of friends they were the only ones who were either killed or spent 20 years in jail you know we didn't know that at the time we didn't know what was really going on i do remember going to visit a, a close friend of my parents a close friend of the family a couple of times at a, at a political prison so we kind of knew, we kind of knew, and you definitely felt like, I don't think there's any way to live in an environment like that and not pick up on the fear through osmosis. Like, I remember one example, because my parents were able to get things that a lot of other people weren't because my dad was a doctor. So through the black market, there were, you know, there was one time where I remember somebody, I guess some farmer, somebody brought like basically half a cow you know, cut up in pieces. And as they were, it was as they were putting it away in the kitchen and managing all that, the secret police, you know, it's called a G2 in, in Cuba at that time, um, knocked on the door. So I remember, you know, like my mom stalling them while my father and the, the woman who helped them with all the kids went to the backyard and was throwing all that beef over the, over the wall to the neighbor's yard, which who kept it, right? We never sell that back. So, you know, it's that kind of thing, like you, you knew, but you didn't, right? Like there was so much that was going on that, that I only found out about after the fact, like when we were older and they told us some of the stories. And you, I mean, you were there right after, you know, the, the revolution. So right after it cut, you know, Cuba had kind of been shut off. Um, so this may not be the case, but something I found interesting you know, when it comes to other countries that have been, I guess, secluded or has secluded themselves. Like, for instance, like North Korea, which is totally a, a different circumstance. But the one like highlight was given that they had been kind of closed off, 
that the like traditional Korean language and the traditional Korean culture had remained because there wasn't all these outside influences. Do you see that as a, as something that happened at all in, in Cuba where kind of the traditional, you know, I, I don't even know what, what Cuba classifies as, as, whether it's Latin American culture or whether it's Caribbean culture, uh, but do you see, I guess, more of a, a traditional culture remaining because it had been closed off a little bit more? You know, it's, it wasn't as closed off, yeah. certainly not nowhere near as Korea. It's like, Correct, yeah. Like, there was always a Russian presence there. We, like I remember my parents used to exchange uh, stuff, you know, black market again with the Russian soldiers, like Cuban rum and cigars for like these huge cans of butter and other, you know, supplies. Mm-hmm. Um, and there were also other tourists. Like I remember Canadians were always welcome to, you know, you always, you saw people from Europe, the, they had embassies from, from Europe and Canada. So it was really shutting down. The, the embargo was really just the U.S. Yeah, yeah. So what was happening, I guess, you know, given that you were there in, in the 60s, I mean, that was in the height of, of U.S. tension. So what did the Cuban people, you know, what were they being told and how did they feel? I mean, we're talking about, you know, the Bay of Pigs and all of that kind of thing. So, I mean, how was it as a a Cuban-American or Cuban as, as you know, not Cuban-American at that time, but just a Cuban? Yeah, you know, it's like I was so young. I don't I don't know. I was probably three or four when Bay of Pigs happened. So I don't remember it. I, I have memories, of course, you know, later. But again, we were so protected from what was really going on that it wasn't until later that, that I started really um, like understanding what was going on. But I do remember this, for example, once you applied for a visa to, to leave the country, you were, you were labeled gusanos, which means worm. Uh, because you're, you're, from their perspective, you're betraying the ideals of the revolution. And I do remember this as a kid, what, what, third grade, fourth grade? And my sister and I were always at the head of the class until word got out that we, that our parent, that our family was, had applied for permission to leave. And from that day on, we never got a single award. And again, in fact, we didn't even get cookies at, at break. You know, when a lot of the kids got cookies or milk or something, like we weren't get me a word they they kept those away from us and and teachers actually call those you know gusanos worms like which is like wow how can you do that to a little kid yeah that's that's something it's always interesting to hear the perspective definitely of, of kids really when when things you know big world events are happening and and you know the country you're in is kind of in the the center stage of exactly how the kids you know went through it you know my for instance my you know my grandmother lived in she's german she lived in germany during you know the height of, of world war ii and just hearing i guess the experience as a kid and actually you know germany feeling better at that time and then you know figuring out everything so it, was, it is an interesting thing just to hear the perspective from a kid so you talked about you know leaving what did make uh, your parents decide to, to move you um from Cuba to Spain and then to the United States. Yeah, freedom. Like that's that's you know that's why people come to this country. Freedom and yeah. the land of opportunity, right? The, that that's what the, the the promise of this country is, and that's why it's been a beacon for people from all over the world. Um, and that's what the Statue of Liberty symbolizes. I mean, the freedom to to raise your kids and however you wanted to raise your kids. You know, my parents were again very religious, and you really couldn't practice that it was 
they kind of looked the other way, but there were times during that during those period where people were persecuted for practicing their religion. Um, so from the very beginning, as soon as it became clear to, because most everybody supported Castro in the beginning, but as soon as it became clear that he was leaning towards uh, towards Russia and communism, um, then that's when my, from the beginning, my parents applied for permission to leave. But because he was a doctor, it took a while for, and, and so many of the doctors had left already. Um, and so they had, to, I guess I, they had to wait for like another generation of, of doctors to be um, trained before they would even consider giving him a permit. So was he able to, I guess, give his intentions on where he wanted to go? It is surprising to me, I guess, that they allowed definitely somebody that's a doctor, somebody that contributes pretty significantly to the community. They allowed them to leave at all. So I guess was that, you said that he had to wait for another generation, but I guess that, that sounds like, was it an extremely difficult process to, to be allowed to leave? Yeah. And, and from my parents' perspective, you know, they used the word that it was a miracle because they, they were the only ones who not only were not shot or imprisoned, but were actually given eventually permission to leave. Um, and no, and they didn't really have a choice. Like, like they knew and we knew that we wanted to come to the States. My sister, my aunt, my mother's sister was already here um, with her family. So they so but I guess at the time you could fly. You could travel, you could emigrate out of Cuba to Spain, Mexico, or Venezuela, but you didn't really have a choice as to which one, hmm. which is like whichever one you got the visa for. So, you know, as a 10-year-old or, or somewhere around there, how did you feel leaving? Were you happy or were you sad to leave your home? Both. I mean, for the most part, it was, it was a very happy thing. Like we knew enough to know what that meant. Hmm. Um, and, you know, that, that there was a life of, of promise and, and hope. Um, and it was also sad. I mean, you were, you were leaving everything you knew. You were leaving family behind that you would probably never see again. So, yeah, mixed. So, you know, we, we've talked about some of, I guess, the, the negative side. But, you know, the, the positive side of, of anywhere is always the people. Um, so tell us just a little bit about, you know, the, the, the positive parts of, of Cuba and the Cuban culture. You know what? I went back about probably ten years ago, and and I was expecting like to like a really scary, you know, military state with a with a soldier with a with a rifle in every corner. And you definitely see them. But what what surprised me the most was that the Cuban people, in, in spite of the the fear based way in which community in which they live, country in which they live, um, and the lack of so many things like survival level stuff, so many so many people are in that they still hadn't lost their, their joie de vivre, the, the, the joy, the zest for life. So you, so you hear music, you hear people laughing. Um, one thing that I've heard, you know, not that one of the things that the, the Cuban people are known for is that they're very hardworking, they're very family oriented. And one thing that I've heard from people here in, in exile and who work with more recent Cuban immigrants that, that there is a difference in that there's that because maybe they grew up in a, in a communist regime in which everything was given, not much, but everything belongs to the state. So, so everything is given to you, what, what little things they have to give you, but that, that, that drive for personal excellence, because there's, there's no way to do that. Right. You have, you have now more recently, you have doctors and, and, CPAs and professional professionals who work 
like as Uber drivers or, or taxi drivers, you know, with a private car, um, because they make so much more money on tips than they would as even a doctor. So, so, so there's definitely a price to pay for, for that, you know, and, and that personal drive, the, the personal excellence. Um, and, and to tell you the truth, I don't know that much about it because, you know, I don't live there. Mm-hmm. Um, so what I, I'm just passing on what I've heard. Yeah. Yeah. We're talking about drive and personal excellence, and we can talk about your drive and the things that you've done. Um, you know, for the last 30 years, you've been a, a spiritual teacher and a life coach doing a lot of really cool things. So tell us just a little bit about what that means. What does being a spiritual teacher and a life coach mean? You know, I'm a personal transformation coach. So I, I help people get free from their own self-made prisons, from their own fears, their own limitations, their own uh, ways of, of, you know, the ways that we play small um, and don't really step into our own potential and our own power. Um, I, my work is psycho-spiritual. My degree is in psychology, and I draw from the spiritual traditions from many of them, from the mystical inner circle teachings of, you know, teach of traditions from both East and West. Um, so I, work, I help people have, you know, the relationships that they really long for, that they have, that actually may have a chance of working, like how to approach um, relationships, um, how to remove the obstacles that we allow ourselves to have through relationship, you know, the subconscious patterns, which sometimes have us, you know, feeling like, like it's the same boring play with a different player, with a different actor, but as you know, I've been here before, I've done this kind of stuff before, it was the same patterns coming up in a relationship. So what's going on? At some point we have to like get honest and say, who's the common denominator in all these relationships and why do I keep attracting this kind of person? Um, so I help people understand those patterns and, and, and let them go, heal them, release them, um, and remove the, the self-imposed obstacles to love, the ways, the ways that we keep love at bay. Um, and, and often subconsciously, you know, by falling for the wrong people, by uh, attracting people who are not available, who are not a match, who are already with somebody else, or they live on the opposite side of the country, or they're just not there, right? So we understand the patterns from a psychological perspective. And then through a series of, of practices, and we bring healing to, those, to the causes of those subconscious patterns. This recent book that I just published, um, Awakening the Soul of Power, it's about personal empowerment. Like, how do we step into power in a way that's not about hierarchy, control, fear, force, domination, that doesn't require for us to push anybody down, step on them in order for us to prop ourselves up and feel powerful. So how do we do it in a different way? And what I've realized, you know, as, I, as I've been doing this kind of work for, for 30 years and specifically on power for like the last 10 years, that a lot of us, or I would say most of us, have an ambivalent relationship to power. We want it, but we're afraid of it. And at the core of that, I think, is that we're afraid that we're going to abuse it. And no wonder. Like All we got to do is like turn on the news on any given day and witness multiple abuses of, of power that have happened that day. Add to that the fact that we've been conditioned you know, to think that power is a bad thing, that it's a negative thing, with phrases like power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely so what good-hearted person wants to be corrupted or to abuse power add to the mix the fact that we've been conditioned to fear the emotions to to walk away from our emotions because we have mislabeled them weakness 
um, where the emotions are not strength, they're not weak, weakness, they're not good, they're not bad, they're just energies like everything else uh, that course through our bodies. So when we put all that into a mix together, what ends up happening is that we sell out on our power. How many times have we said yes to something when inside it was like a heck no, like it really wasn't okay with us, but in order to, uh, because we're, we're afraid of conflict, we fear confrontation. And, and because we're terrified of, you know, being left alone or being abandoned and all this subconscious stuff that drives our behavior, we end up stifling ourselves, sti- you know, putting ourselves into little boxes, into selling out for, you know, for illusion of security, for, for a false sense of security and acceptance and, and for morsels of pseudo love. And it's not an effective strategy. So I guess, what does that look like in relation to, you know, when we're talking about power, are we talking about like, you know, power of self and, and you know, self, self-empowerment? Or are we talking about power as a whole? Because I'm just trying to figure out how that correlates between people. Because if, I guess if one person is taking the power, it means one person, you know, is not. So I just wonder how, how that power and taking the power works in correlation with everyone else that is, I guess, trying to, to take power as well. Yeah. And that's a great question. And, and what they didn't tell us about that, you know, that phrase power corrupts was that it was intended specifically to, it was referring to political power, not the interpersonal interhuman power that you're talking about, that you're asking about in, about our relationships. Um, so it, so our ambivalence also stems from that misunderstanding. Um, so, and, and that's one of the things that, that I, that I help us see in this book is that we can have a way of expressing, we can't step into our power in a way that is a match for who we are. So I talk about how there's different kinds of power. There's worldly power or ego power, egoic power, which, which is associated with externals, you know, things that are outside of us. We tend to think of power or powerful people as those who have money or fame, or, or there's some kind of you know, have some, there's some part of some hierarchy, whether it's a corporate ladder or a religious institution or something. But all those things, because they're outside of us, are fickle. Here today, gone tomorrow, as so many people are, have discovered in this last year of, of the pandemic when companies and, you know, closed, had to close their doors then. And so many people whose, whose identity was connected to a job suddenly like, who am I and what do I do? Um, and so the other kind of power that I, that I refer to as soulful power or spiritual power, it's, in, it's inside each and every one of us. Nobody can give it to us. Nobody can take it away. Only we can forfeit it. Only we can give it away. Um, and so one of, one of the other differences between them is that external power or worldly power has that belief that you were referencing that, that there's a, a limited amount of it. Right? So that it's a zero-sum game. You're having power takes away from mine. Whereas the other kind of power, spiritual power, is like, wait a minute, who says? Right? Why would your beings in your power take away from mine? It's like, I know who I am. I have clear boundaries. I know what works for me and what doesn't work for me. So I, I can handle whatever situation comes my way. I don't have to be feel threatened by anybody else having power. So it's a different come from one is one is, you know, kind of has an agenda, is always trying to get something for itself, like the worldly power. It's self-aggrandizing, so it's trying to make itself bigger than it is and, and more powerful than it is. The other one is humble. 
It's, it's about service. It's about making a, a difference in this world. And so think about, for example, Gandhi or Gandalf, you know, from the Lord of the Rings and their, and their simple monastic robes or sandal feet. You would never know how much power they hold until it's necessary. And then watch out. Right? Like Gandhi brought the British Empire to its knees when it was at its highest point in terms of global influence without ever shooting a single gun or landing a punch. Like talk about power. Yeah. Yeah. And that's kind of, kind of addressing my next question. You know, when we were talking about, I guess how power doesn't mean one person's taking it and then one person's losing it. Um, I mean, it sounds like by people truly being able to take their power, I think that sometimes it allows other people to, to, to find their power and, and, and things as well. Exactly. Exactly. When, when, when we're in our authentic power, we're not threatened by other people having power. So rather than, like you, we could say, you know, one is power over, whereas the other one is power with. Yeah. It's like once, once the, more, the, the stronger our self-esteem, the stronger and, and self-referencing that, that our self-esteem is connected to, so that, meaning that we no longer need external validation. It's like we know who we are. And, and, and we're established at that sense of deep sense of self-acceptance and self-love. Then the less external validation that we need and the less that we are threatened by other people having power. It's like, you know, we stand free um, and not threatened by, by others. Yeah. Something else you use in your book that, that generally is used, I guess, in, in terms of, you know, power grabs and and also like the negative side of, of power and, and corrupt power but you i think you use it in a kind of a positive way so tell us a little bit about what power plays are yeah um the way that i read about power plays is what happens is when we suppress our power it comes out in unhealthy ways right so we get stuck in in power strategies and in, in, in unhealthy power patterns so for example Passive aggressiveness, right? It's like maybe we're in a relationship where we don't feel that we can really say what we believe. Um, and so, or in order just even to avoid conflict or getting stuck in the many power struggles that we get stuck in, um, because what you have is like, you know, two egos like wanting to be right and, and wanting things their way. And, and so we lock heads and we lock horns um, and it usually doesn't end well. So, so, you know, here, here's an example. I'm sitting, I'm sitting uh, watching TV, you know, channel surfing and my spouse, my partner, whatever is like in, in the kitchen. Hey, hey, can, can you come help me clean up here? It's like, yeah, I'll be there in five minutes. Ten minutes later, hey, can you come, come over? I'm saying, yeah, yeah I'll, I'll be right over. That's what I'm saying. What I'm really saying in that is like, screw you. Like, I'll come over when I'm good and ready when I'm done watching this. So, you know, it, it's like rather than just like addressing indirectly and saying what, how, why we're upset or, or what we want or what we don't want, like we, we, we fall into these kind of covert ways of, of expressing power that are, that are not healthy and they're not fulfilling ultimately. Like, you know, re revenge is another example, um, which, you know, the more that I think about this, when we commit, when we take revenge on, on somebody else, I think that we're, we're ultimately wanting to balance what we perceive as a, as, a, as a power imbalance, right? You took something away from me, well, I'm gonna take something away from you, uh, kind of thing. 
And it might feel good momentarily for a little bit, like, you know, we'll get you back, but it doesn't really get us what we want. And that, and that feeling doesn't last long, right? Then we start feeling badly about what we did uh, because at heart, most of us are good people. So we don't want to, we don't want to harm somebody else. Um, and we don't want to carry those, those negative feelings towards anybody else. And by the way, I'm not talking about wimping out and, and, and I'm, on the contrary, I'm talking about a journey of empowerment, but how do we do that, right? Well, how do we do that in a way that is not harmful to ourselves or to others? These are all really, really ins- inspiring and also powerful words, but I, I don't want you to give away too much of the book. So we'll close it up, look at the cover. And how did you get Gloria Estevan involved in all this? Man, uh, Jackson, <laughs> I'm still kind of blown away. It's like so humbled that that she gave such an amazing endorsement of the book. And, you know, it's another testament to belief and persistence. She's done, uh, I moved back to Florida about 10 years ago. I lived in Northern California for a long time, for 20 years. And she's very, you know, she's a local celebrity down here. She's a celebrity worldwide, but particularly down here. And so I knew that she was um, gonna be honored at some gala event. So I bought a ticket, splurged my money and went to this gala. And at the end of it, I made a beeline, you know, to where she was standing. And she was very accessible, very, very humble, very kind and generous human being. So, you know, people were lining up to talk to her. And so I tell her, you know, I tell the truth as a way to connect that when we, before Gloria was Gloria, when it was Miami Sound Machine, they used to play at our, at my high school dances. So you know, we laughed about that and we connected and we, you know, we talked about the band, what it was, what it was like, because they had changed and evolved. Um, way back then it was two women singing and one of, the, one of them was her cousin. So we talked about, all about that. And so I told her a little bit about the book um, and told her that it partic- had a, it's for everybody, but it had a particular message about women's empowerment. And so and I said, I think you're going to be interested in it. So she gave me her manager's card. That phase took me about two years to get him to return my, my emails and I was about to give up. And then I read something which just made me think, right, what's, what's in it for her? Like, right, out of all the people and all, all the people that want something from her, how do I frame this in a way that's going to inspire her, that's going to make her want to do it or, or inspire her to do it? And so I, the book is a, it's the first of a series of three books. The, the title of the series is Calling All Heroes. Like, what does it mean to live heroically in the 21st century? And so I rewrote my email to her and I said, you know what, I know that you probably wouldn't think of yourself in these terms, but the way that you recovered from your bus accident and your temporary paralysis was heroic and you were such an inspiration to so many countless people all over the world. And then I had also done some research about her family and read in some interview that her father had also been a counter-revolutionary and had actually been involved in Bay of Pigs from this side. Um, so I connected with her, her there. I said, you know, the sacrifices that our families made are, again, nothing less than heroic. And then I told her about the book and I said, won't you help me? I, I said, I spoke about her generosity, all of it true. And so I wasn't buttering her up. I was just saying the truth. I just did my research and found out that she had helped a lot of other um, Latino artists like, like Make It Big, like Shakira and John Sakaira and others. And so I said, won't you help this fellow Cuban-American have a broader, you know, megaphone when she helped me reach more people that make a difference in this world. And so I waited like two more months and it was like time to go to press. And I, I just thought, all right, just one more. I was ready to give up. 
And for some reason, this little, this inner voice just said, all right, just one more email. I said, all right, all right, one more email. And I, I said, um, so I wrote the managers, hey, hey, I just want, want to make sure I'm not stalking you, but I want to make sure that you're getting my emails because I have to go to press. And this time he finally got back to me. He said, hey, can you give us another week? She's halfway through your book and she's loving it. Hmm. So, so the message for your audience is like, you know, if you've got a dream, like don't give up. Follow it and, and do whatever you got to do. Yeah, to no, that's, that's really, really cool. That, I mean, that's, that's amazing. I think she's a really good, I mean, just a, really a, a cover person, so to speak, for what it means to kind of take the power back and, and take the power of your career. So I think, I don't think you could have picked a better person. Definitely, you know, in the, um, you know, in that same Cuban American scene. So I think that's really, really awesome. Yeah, she was, she was always, she really is like, she embodies the message. She really is an, an inherently good person. Yeah. And, and with the power that she has and, and the money and all the success, she hasn't lost that, that humanity and the accessibility and the kindness, both, both she and her husband, Emilio, are like, like really good people. And they do so many things for the community down here. Um, and, and yeah, she was always from the beginning, she was one of my two or three people that I really wanted to whose endorsement I really wanted. She was probably the top one. Yeah, no, that's, that's really cool. So how can other people, you know, we we've gotten in the hands of, of Gloria Estevan. How can it get in the hands of other people? <laughs> well, the book is available, you know, wherever books are sold, you can get it on Amazon. You can get it at your local bookstore. Um, and people can find me at my soul, my um, website, which is soulfulpower.com. And they can go there and from there they can link to the to places where they can order the book. Um, and if they sign up now to be on my email list, I have some goodies to give away, like a chapter from the book, um, a list of power practices from the book that they can start using into their lives now to help integrate the teachings and, and take them on to into, you know, apply them to their lives. And a short guided meditation, I think it's on on trust. Yeah. So, I mean, that, that I always ask, you know, how can they find the book then also how they can find you? I think that you've, you've kind of covered that, but just kind of to reiterate how exactly not just the book, but how can they find um, you? I was yeah. going to try, I was going to, you know, I was worried about saying your name again, Christian <laughs> Delaweta. <laughs> Look at you. Yeah, yeah, that's good. There you go. I tried to say your name and I just said you, but how can we find Christian <laughs> Delaweta? Well, I really appreciate how your 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 commitment to pronouncing it correctly. Really, <laughs> your intent. I really yeah, t- appreciate it. Um, soulfulpower.com, S-O-U-L-F-U-L, power.com is my website. And thank you so much for the opportunity, Jackson. Thank you so much for having me on the show. And thank you for for all you do on, on all our behalf. Well, I appreciate that. And again, thanks for joining me. It's been an absolute pleasure to speak with you. Thank you. Same here. And that was my interview with Christian De La Huerta. Hope you enjoyed that. I learned a lot just about the Cuban Revolution and from someone who experienced it firsthand. A lot about power. You know, I, it was a, it was, it was an eye-opening conversation just to hear exactly how power doesn't mean that you're taking it from someone else. You know, if you're doing a really good job with it, you're actually helping other people find their power by taking your own. So I thought that was really, really fascinating. If it is something you want to hear more about, recommend the book for sure, Awakening the Soul of Power. 
I will put a link to the website and then also a link to the Amazon page for it. But I really appreciate Christian's time. I hope you enjoyed this. I hope you learned something either from the Cuban Revolution about power and what it means to have it or a little bit of both. That would be great. Check him out. Check his book out. If you haven't already, follow us on Instagram. Follow us on Facebook. Instagram, Not In Huff Podcast. Facebook, Not In Huff with Jackson Huff. That's the page, jacksonhuff.com. It's all there. Appreciate Christian. Appreciate you. Take it away, Chris. This has been Not In A Huff with Jackson Huff. Thank you for listening. Be sure to join us next time where we will interview another amazing guest who is sure to make you laugh or make you think, or hey, maybe even both. But until then, keep being awesome.